0: up on today's show, Alberta's emergency room doctors say ERs are just swamped right now. Indigenous resource management, it's happening more often and it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Plus, a guest tells us that the absolute rejection of sedition should be non-negotiable. That should be the baseline if you want to be a political candidate. We've talked about healthcare a lot. Clearly it's not working. There's, there's no question about it. There's a, I'm sure there's a million different reasons why, but um, it just seems to be slipping worse and worse and worse. Now, if you've ever, and I mean ever, had to go to the ER, you know that the weight, depending on what you are going in for can be uh, very, very long. And right now, there's a good chance it'll be longer than it's ever been before. That's uh, the most recent report. So to get an update on what's happening, we're going to chat with our frontline ER doc. That's Dr. Shazma Mathani. She is an ER doctor at the Royal Alec and the Stollery Children's Hospitals in Edmonton. Uh, Dr. Mathani, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Always a pleasure to chat. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me this morning, Shay.
0: So uh, I know you're there. and we, we go to you for frontline reports and to let us know just what's going on in the ERs. We're, we're seeing these reports that it's worse than it's ever been. Just, how bad is it right now?
1: Well, the wait times we're seeing right now are really quite unprecedented. I've been working in the ER for over a decade now, and I've never seen consistently high wait times like this. I know that a lot of people um, will say that, yeah, you know, five years ago I had a wait time of five hours. And, of course, there would have been one-offs like that. But what we're seeing now is, is just this consistent pressure of wait times over five hours every single day. And that's very concerning. And, it, and it's really um, a reflection of, of what's going on in the system right now.
0: Yeah. And, I, and like I said, I imagine there's a lot of different factors that contribute to this. Let's start on the patient side. Are, are there more people? I mean, is, is the demand higher? Is that part of it?
1: Absolutely, yes. So we've seen this growing care deficit throughout the pandemic where patients have been losing family doctors, so haven't been able to have their chronic issues cared for. Uh they've been avoiding going in to see their family doctors and avoiding coming to the emergency department and now that has kind of all come to a head and we're seeing rising volumes and, and more sick patients coming into the emergency department.
0: Um, and what about, uh, you mentioned the pandemic, and then, like you say, there's there's a shortage of family doctors, and we all know how that's gone. But I've, I keep hearing that people are showing up with conditions that they've sort of put off for the course of the pandemic. They didn't get it dealt with the way they should, and now they become much more serious. How much of a factor is that when in your ER, people showing up with conditions that maybe they didn't ignore but didn't want to go to a hospital to deal with over the pandemic?
2: I
1: would say that's a pretty significant factor. Okay. It's not uncommon for me to, to speak with a patient and, and they tell me exactly that. You know, I was just trying to wait to see or hold off and, and wait to see if I could, um, if it would just pass or I was nervous to come in or, you know, a multitude of reasons. But, but the bottom line is that they, there was a delay in them presenting.
0: On the healthcare side, on the system side itself, um, the increase in demand, are, are the ranks just depleted? Or are there not as many doctors and nurses as, as necessary?
1: yes staffing shortages are a big contributing factor to this as well so we're seeing shortages throughout the hospital um in the emergency department uh up on the inpatient units and what that means is um with with fewer staff it means that we can't um, manage as many patients, right? Because it's just not mm-hmm. safe to do that. And so that may mean bed closures, that may mean um, patients moving much more slowly through the system. And then that ends up trickling down, of course, to the emergency department
0: like we've talked about
1: before and will increase, increase the amount that every single patient is waiting.
0: And. I was reading some reports where uh, doctors were saying, you know what, even if we can get people into the ER and treat them, then we would typically moving them upstairs into some other ward or, you know, but we don't have the space up there either. So they stay with us and um, that backs things up too.
1: Exactly. So if you think about the way that a patient flows through the acute care system, they'll come in, they'll triage in the emergency department, then they'll wait until there's a bed in the emergency department. They'll get their emergency care and if they have to be admitted, they have to then wait for a bed upstairs. And so, of course, if there are no beds upstairs, they can't move out, and then the next person can't move into the ER, and that just basically creates this backlog of of patient movement and then, again, increases the wait time.
0: Um, Doc, when we talk about this situation, of course, it's not new, and the province has said they're doing a lot of things to try and address it. Um, In in speaking with uh, reporters this week, AHS said there's 270 more staff in emergency departments across the province right now than there was just a year ago, and they've hired more than 2,000 registered nurses. Positions have been filled. So where are these staff? Is it not enough?
1: I mean, the bottom line is it's not enough. I I don't know where they're going. Um, I don't know the details of that, but the There are a couple of uh, concerns with that, the main one being um, when we look at places like um, kind of high-acuity places like the emergency department and the ICU, for example, um, it's important to have a certain ratio of experienced nurses, right, because this is the sickest of the sick for patients. And so putting in um, brand-new nurses and junior nurses can be... challenging and can actually slow things down more through no fault of these junior nurses because they're putting being put into a situation that's not really fair sure, yeah yeah so that that also can i mean yes it's important to have as much staff as possible but there's it's not instantaneous relief because there's a level of training that needs to take place there's all this experience that needs to be gained before they um before the staff member is competent to function in in a high acuity area
0: and, and, and there's no shortcut for that 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 just takes time Exactly. Um, if, you're, you know, if you're an Albertan, and I'm getting texts from people who've had all kinds of experiences trying to get their kid taken into an ER and stuff like that, what's, what's the message to the Albertan? You can still rely on it. Like, when we talk about these wait times being hours and hours and hours and hours, that's if you're going in with something that isn't severe, correct? I mean, if you show up in an emergency room with something that is acute and needs to be dealt with immediately, that you get bumped up, right? I mean, how does that work? Because I'm sure people are, are a little worried by this. Absolutely.
1: So if you come in with, um, that's what kind of, that's what the point of triaging is, right? So when the triage nurse sees a patient, they will assess you, get your quick story and get a set of vital signs. And so anybody that's coming in with a life or limb threatening condition, we will always make space for you. We'll find some, some way to get you in right away, um, to treat you. If somebody comes in, of course, um, you know, in a cardiac arrest, for example, we they come in right away. Um, the the problem with that is, though, that um, as we see more of those very sick patients, it means that the uh, less sick, not not sick, but less sick patients are waiting longer. And, and the concern, of course, with that is, you know, somebody that might be able to be sitting there and not in immediately life-threatening condition could continue to get worse when they're in the waiting room. So that's a concern. But, of course, we're always there um, we, In the emergency department, I would say we're the most resourceful people in the hospital. We always try to find ways to make things work, if that means um, creating kind of unconventional spaces to see people in, going to see people on, you know, the ambulance stretchers, um, in the hallways, just to try to get things going. We're trying to do our best to see everybody as quickly as possible. And I I certainly don't want to deter anybody from coming to the ER, because we are there. I mean, if you need us, we're there. Um, But... If you're not as worried, if you have a pediatrician or a family doctor that you can get in to see, um, then try to do that. Uh, of course, you can always call 811 to get some advice, and if all else fails, we're always there.
0: And bottom line is, if it's, if it's something that perhaps a pediatrician or your, or your GP could have handled and you show up at the ER, be prepared to wait. And you know what, Doc? That makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we,
0: it's with
1: the way that the eMERGE works, of course, we take the sickest patients first. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the way it works.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll always appreciate the update. Thank you so much, doctor. You bet. Thanks, Shay. That is Dr. Shasma Mathani, who is an ER doc at the uh, Royal Alec Hospital in Edmonton and the Staudry Children's Hospital in Edmonton. So, I mean, they're, they're, that's just what she's seeing in her ER that she's working in. And, you know, she's not alone. talking about resource management, and um, we're talking here about wildlife and and, and other things like that, and sort of how getting Indigenous communities and Indigenous culture involved in resource management um, has been happening more successfully in some areas, why it needs to be done. It's it's going to be a very interesting um, discussion. We're going to get into it now. Joining us is J.P. Gladue, who's a senior fellow at the McDonald Blurie Institute and an Indigenous business leader. Uh, J.P., thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks for taking interest in this subject, Shay. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject, I think, and and I mean, just to sort of define what we're talking about, we're talking about more and more instances where indigenous leadership is is involved in resource management, right? And it, it, it's it's we're seeing beneficial results from it.
2: Yeah, absolutely we are. I mean, why why are we wasting the opportunity of uh, indigenous knowledge that with indigenous people that have been on the land for thousands of years who have obviously been able to learn and, and coexist and actually understand the land systems to uh, incorporate that with, uh, you know, uh, Western science has got a role as well. And and the most important part about all this is really making sure that we've got our knowledge systems working with uh, Western science model systems to make sure that we're doing the best job we can in thinking about our future.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, sort of working together and bringing all knowledge to bear here, which, I mean, really only makes sense. So you you illustrate it through a couple of different examples in the piece that you wrote. Um, Let's talk about the caribou herd and and how, how that was sort of turned around in part because of indigenous knowledge.
2: Well, the Saltzu First Nation, West Mobile First Nation and UBC and the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative created a partnership with the Klinska uh, Mountain caribou herd. And, uh, you know, caribou, as we know in this country, is, is a keystone species. Um, it's certain, and I'm not a biologist. I just want to be very clear. I'm actually a forester by training with with an MBA. But you know, caribou herds are, are struggling across our, our country, um, and you know, the the Western models have been trying to um, find ways in which to um, uh, reinvigorate, conserve, grow these herds, and they were struggling. The animals were down; they were near collapse, down to near 40 animals. But with that partnership and having Indigenous people as part of the the strategy and the knowledge um, has since uh, rebounded to more than 110 animals. Now, of course, we want to see thousands, but yeah. um, it certainly it's a better trend than going down or, or, or totally uh, collapse.
0: When we talk about the Indigenous involvement in resource management, what does that bring that maybe has been overlooked in other instances? What have we not incorporated that we are now to our own benefit?
2: Well, you know, it's, you know, look at the, you know, I'm, I'm no stranger to the oil and gas sector. I'm a big supporter of oil and gas, mining, forestry. My grandfather was a forester. The other one helped build the Trans Canada pipelines in Northern Ontario to set some context. Um, you know, corporations now and in, the in, in world economy of ESG and environment and, and here in Canada, what does the eye look like in ESG? And there's certainly Indigenous. Uh, knowledge systems and issues to be incorporated with environment, social, and governance. Um, you know, our corporations are waking up um, to the reality that uh, we've got to do better. The world isn't ex- is expecting more. And if we're going to get our projects off the ground, um, we've got to make sure that we do a better job of including Indigenous people in, in everything from project inception to construction to operations, and you know what we're getting to in the um, into the the, de- uh, the shutting down and, and reclamation of our lands and having indigenous people and in, in, you know the, the communities in in Fort McMurray region who have been helping restore uh, oil sands when they're when they're down uh, when they're finished and you know we're seeing that you know the buffalo herd the bison herds are coming back, there's more diversity. Uh, and and that's good. That's good for business. It's good for the relationships. Um, it's you know it's our, our, we 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 struggled uh, as of late in our relationships, and you know these are opportunities to build those relationships of, between indigenous and corporations and government. So it's it's relationships.
0: The upside for the indigenous communities that are involved with this, I mean, that the land and and the resources that's part of the culture, and it sort of reconnects, right?
2: You know, absolutely. I mean, when you're, you know, my grandmothers were both uh, residential school survivors, and I'm mixed health characters. I've got French and Scottish in me, too. And, you know, this reconciliation process that our country is going through um, you know we need to feel that we're empowered we need to make sure that our voices are heard in all aspects of, of our of our of our country uh, and 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 being part of and and being valued as human beings to make sure that as I mentioned at the beginning that our knowledge systems are being respected in a way that's being incorporated into policies and practice and science and our and our traditional knowledge holders and our elders are at the table with corporations and governments I mean that's how you build trust I mean, yeah. it's been so fractured, and without that trust, it's really difficult to to build those relationships.
0: Um, are we seeing it happen more and more often? Is this something that uh, everybody seems to be uh, in getting more involved in and seeing the results and something that, you know, we could see grow?
2: No, yeah, 100%, Shay. We're starting to see it right across, right across the country. Um, but, but I do want to put a little bit of a cautious note on this and, and i'll even just use my own community i'm from uh, from a community called bingo which is just in northern ontario um and there's uh, there's you know i'm a hunter i'm on the land as much as i possibly can and i and i obviously socialize a lot with my fellow indigenous hunters and we're talking to non-indigenous hunters who are um uh, are being issued a, 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 a we're really puzzled why the mnr is is issuing so many caltex because the cows we don't hunt the cows unless necessary um because those are our future breeders for our, our herds and, and we're understanding that they're actually and to counter to the uh, the previous story around bringing caribou back in the region and the, the environment's not conducive to it um uh anymore uh, there's there's lots of wolves the deer are starting to push our moose out and so in that in that instance we're starting to see the m and r overstepping in our opinions and the chiefs have been and my chief has been very vocal about don't be making these decisions without us because we're on the land all the time. We've got an understanding of what's happening, and, and if you're going to leave us out of the picture, there's going to be issues. Uh, but, but, again, the northern caribou herds, I mean, the salmon stocks, again, communities are... Are are starting to push back and going like, listen, uh, DFL, you've you've been managing this since you got here, and and you've kind of been messing it up. And it's and a mess. Look, look, yeah, yeah. So we need to be, you know, Chief Patty Walker um, and uh, the uh, Vancouver Island First Nation uh, declared a control over the fishing and traditional territories, and, and good on them. Um, you know, it's time for our knowledge systems to to step into a place where we can co-manage or, in some places,
0: manage. In the piece, you say it seems like. Industry and uh, the people that are developing these resources have a better understanding of this new relationship than it sounds like government might. Would that be fair?
2: Yeah, I think you're very fair there. I mean, the government, you know, they have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility around consultation, accommodation, and you know, the, the United Nations declarations coming out. The for first prior informed consent, who's doing the work? It's industry, um, and so they've been stubbing their toes, but they've also been learning from those uh, e- those experiences with our communities, and they're doing a, a great job. In many examples, it's not perfect, but certainly uh, industry is leading the way because they're the ones that, if they're going to get the permits done, I mean, it's it, it, uh, they're going to have to do the work. But com- companies uh, that are doing the work are finding out that these relationships can be very productive, and 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 the relationships can can it can enrich their knowledge systems and vice versa i mean uh or you know our people are um very dependent on the resource sectors for 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 our access to an economy and and wealth creation and 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 we just want to be a part of the process from again as i mentioned from project inception to um to to, all through the life cycle of a project, and, and industry and First Nation communities and Métis communities have been um, getting getting a lot done. I'm I'm very optimistic about uh, the future of our of our growth, and I think government's got to uh, sometimes just get out of the way mm-hmm. uh, for for progress. Um, no, no, you know, I, I think we've got a long way to go there, but uh, you
0: know, I'm hopeful. Yeah, and we are seeing some progress. Really interesting conversation. JP, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it thank you much uh, for the interest. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That is J.P. Gladue, who is a senior fellow at the MacDonald-Laurier Institute and an Indigenous business leader. We've also spent a lot of time talking about the state of politics in our province. And in our country, and we are currently, uh, and, you know, this conversations revolve largely around conservative politics right now. And the reason being, we have leadership races provincially and federally with the conservative party. So we're sort of seeing different conservative candidates align themselves with this group, that group, this movement, that movement. And, and um, you know, and then we argue about whether they've gone too far or not far enough. And that's the way that it works. But is there some bedrock? Is there some areas that it's just, okay, we all agree. We all say this is a line that no political candidate should cross. And if they do, it's disqualifying. Do we have that? Does that exist in this country? Um, Should it? Uh, We're going to chat now with Hugh Siegel. Um, Hugh is a Matthews fellow at the Queen's School of Policy Studies, former chief of staff to Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and a former Associate Cabinet Secretary in Ontario for Federal-Provincial Relations. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to chat once again. Well, I'm glad to be here with you. It's a conversation that I I spent a lot of time thinking about, and uh, I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it. Uh, We're going to be sort of bouncing around off your piece that you wrote recently, and in it, you draw parallels between the January 6th hearings and the January 6th incident in the United States, and the recent activity we saw in Canada. Where do you see the similarities?
3: Well, um, we had as as uh, your listeners will remember, uh the occupation of the national capital downtown of the, of uh, of Ottawa uh by the truckers freedom convoy. Uh and it went on for many many weeks before the um uh the police uh, got the authority to move people out as peacefully uh, as possible. And um during that period of time Um, we had some members of the Freedom Convoy, not all, I want to be clear about that, Mm -hmm. but some, who did some things which I think most Canadians would view as distasteful. There were some people waving a Nazi swastika flag, some wearing a Confederate flag, some people danced on the grave of the unknown soldier at the War Memorial near Parliament. And, and, uh, And those are the sorts of things which I think most members of the convoy would have been Unhappy about, and certainly it was not something which endeared the uh, Freedom Convoy to the vast majority of Canadians. One of the things that happened in that process was uh, when the convoy arrived, uh, a group of members of the Freedom Convoy issued a Memorandum of Understanding. And that Memorandum of Understanding called for the Governor General, who I remind your listeners is not elected, and the Senate who I remind your listeners, is not elected. I know that because I was a member of it for about 10 years. Um, to remove the prime minister, who I remind, I, re- I remind your listeners, was duly elected under our democratic process, and replace him with a, um, a tripartite circumstance where the governor general, the senate, and representative of the truckers' convoy would constitute the new government. Now, uh, under the Criminal Code of Canada... Removing a duly elected government by something other than a democratic election is called sedition. And as many of your listeners and viewers who are watching the hearings in Washington may have seen, there's been quite a bit of coverage that many of the people who were part of the insurrection on January the 6th in Washington have been charged with seditious conspiracy. In other words, they were planning to remove the constitutional capacity of the vice president and the U.S. Congress to confirm the election results and to do so by use of force. So the point that I tried to make in my piece in the globe was that um, it's not acceptable in any democracy or any person seeking high office to um, be either in favor of or ambivalent about uh, using sedition as a way to change a government. We change governments in this country to elections where people get to vote. We sometimes get rid of governments because the government loses a confidence vote in the House of Commons, but the people voting in that confidence vote are all duly elected members of Parliament who are accountable to their constituents. So that's the point that I was trying to make, and I was focusing specifically on Pierre Paulier because he was one of the MPs who went down from Parliament Hill and met with the truckers and was supportive of what they were doing and had photographs taken. And and to be fair to Pierre, he's made it perfectly clear that while he supported the cause and the freedom, he wasn't in favor of anything illegal that may have been done, such as dancing on the grave of the unknown soldier, mm-hmm. etc. But he did not say anything about the proposal in the um, uh, in the memorandum of, of uh, understanding about removing the Prime Minister by something other, a democratic process. And so my view is, if he's serious about being leader of the Conservative Party, as I assume he is, and about being Prime Minister, he has to be very, very clear that he has no time for sedition, and he has not, to this point, said anything of that kind.
0: Can a... And a lot of them have tried to walk this line and say, well, you know what? And 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 Hugh, I'm seeing it all over, all right. Excellent, and you and I'm sure you're not surprised. Oh, come on! It was one person with a swastika. Don't try and paint the whole crowd. And that's that's where we start pulling this apart, right? And as you were very careful to do off the top, um, we're not painting everybody with the same brush. But we're not we're not running for office. So if you're a, if you're a politician, who is? Um, can you walk that line? Can you say, well, I like this person at the convoy, but I don't agree with that person at the convoy? And do you need to be crystal clear about that?
3: I thought that, um, and I, and I'm just so everybody, your listeners are clear. Uh, I am a member of the Conservative Party, and I'm not supporting Mr. Polyev, But I want to be fair. I thought when he made the distinction between those people who come to Ottawa to make their case, they're concerned about vaccine mandates and other issues, but were not involved in anything that was specifically illegal, was one group. Those who were doing illegal things, he wanted to disassociate himself from. So I give him credit for having done that. Having said that, he has been silent on the issue of the proposal to replace the existing prime minister, duly elected, by a tripartite new arrangement, which would have, by the way, no constitutional uh, legitimacy in Canada, of a governor general unelected, a senate unelected, and then representatives of the truckers, who would be, I assume, unelected. He's been silent on that. And I think that he owes it to people who support him and to the country to be clear about how he feels about that.
0: Um, when we take a look at this, you know why they don't. Um, and and, and you know, here's my text line just telling you, uh, you know, and during the convoy, Trudeau hit and illegally invoked the emergency act. And now he's lying about it. The reason he's doing it is because there's, a, there's support there there's there's support there in a, in, a, in a in a way it's cutting off some of your support to come out and say this was wrong and we've seen all kinds of different conservative candidates jumping around this position as they run for the leadership john cherishman's been very vocal about it and saying this was a disaster it was a crime it shouldn't have happened but other than that it's all sort of shades of gray
3: well i think you're right and i think quite frankly if we let's assume for a moment that a whole bunch of Canadians would like to remove the present government at the next election. Let's, let's, let's assume for a moment that all of the people seeking the conservative leadership want to be the leader of the party that does that because they want to be successful politically. All of that is great, but I think it's really important that people who aspire to high office and who clearly have a reasonable chance of getting there, as would be the case, Mr. Pagliav, make it perfectly clear that whatever they have in mind, anybody who proposes a non-democratic way of removing a government is not someone they would ever support or tolerate. Because if they are not clear about that, they leave the door open to a whole bunch of folk on the fringes, far right, far left, who may be involved, in fact, in suggesting that we really shouldn't wait for elections. They're such a pain in the neck. We should just get rid of the government some other way. Well... That is sedition, that is treasonous, and it's against the criminal code. That's why I think people who aspire to high office should be precise about that.
0: Mr. Siegel, it's an interesting conversation, and it sparked a lot of debate on the text line. I appreciate your time today. Thank you.
3: Thank you. All the very best.
0: That's Hugh Siegel, who, I'm going to just say again, was Chief of Staff to Brian Mulrooney and served as the Federal and Provincial Relations Associate Cabinet Secretary in the Ontario government.